This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Sunday, October 9, 2022, and welcome to the 34th episode in this series from Midas Touch and 5-Minute News called The Weekend Show, where we take a deep dive into the news of the week. You can subscribe as audio, as a podcast, in addition to my daily 5-Minute News podcast on iTunes or wherever you get yours. Joining me today is investigative journalist, technologist, and historian David Troy. David, hi. Hey, glad to be here, Anthony. I've uh, seen some of your TED Talks. I've kind of been very interested in the way that you uh, kind of explain some of the um, insecurities of the planet. It seems like so many things that are happening in the world right now are kind of interlinked. And that's really what I'd like to kind of ask you about today, because um, just incidentally, a couple of days ago, Joe Biden declared the risk of nuclear Armageddon is at the highest level since the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. This is as Russian officials are now speaking of using tactical nuclear weapons after suffering these setbacks, you know, because uh, Ukraine is now being well stocked. Uh, So that's something that I think we'll, we'll start with. But I also then want to talk a little bit about the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. This is after, on Thursday, the North Carolina man pleaded guilty um, uh, with other members of the far-right uh, group, the Proud Boys, to violently stop the transfer of presidential power after the 2020 election. His name's Jeremy Joseph Bettino, and uh, he's now cooperating with the Justice Department's investigation. So, you know, the rise of the right uh, in the U.S. and around the world, and increasingly we find that if you watch right-wing media, if you follow social media and you see the, the, the right-wing rhetoric, they seem to now be on the side of Putin. Yeah. Yeah, this got started uh, really, you know, many years ago. Uh, in fact, the roots go back to um, at least the mid-90s. Uh, there was a group that got started in 1995 called the World Congress of Families, by a fellow named Alan Carlson, uh, who was a professor, um, I believe it was at Hillsdale College. Um, but he was traveling in Russia, and you know he had this kind of revelation that there were a lot of people in Russia that shared what you might call family values or Christian values. And so he started to network quite a bit with people in the Russian Orthodox Church who were pursuing agendas, um, you know, really against. Uh, you know, homosexuality, against abortion, things like this. So, uh, you know, really created this kind of right-wing network between the U.S. and Russia, as well as counterparts in Europe and in, you know, other parts of the world who were very interested in kind of this right-wing agenda. And so, uh, you know, that network started to kind of flourish uh, in the, you know, mid to late 90s. 
And over the course of the subsequent 20 years, um, you know, really became uh, quite a clearly defined force. So uh, there was an essay that wrote that Pat Buchanan, the, you know, sort of Republican firebrand um, strategist uh, in the United States wrote called Whose Side um, Is God On Now, I believe it is. And um, the essay basically suggested that uh, God was on Putin's side because Putin was siding with these traditional family values. And there's this whole, you know, line of argument around um, making Moscow be the third Rome and kind of creating a, a restoration of, of Christianity between Rome and uh, the Orthodox Church. Um, and so that became kind of the through line through which um, a lot of this current sentiment started to grow. And then now what we're seeing is almost like, you know, if those were the mycelial threads that had been woven over the course of decades, what we're seeing now is the fruiting body of the mushrooms. And let's hope it's not a mushroom cloud uh, that comes from all of this mycelial networking. So this has been building for a very long time. I want to talk about how God and religion is, you know, used as an excuse for atrocities. Uh, sure. In just a little bit, let's let's start with uh, Joe Biden this week. This um, psychological warfare—it's it's like a game of poker, isn't it? It's like he's got nukes, we've got nukes. He might use the nukes. We don't want to use the nukes. <laughs> you know, this whole yeah. back and forth—it's it's. it's and for Joe Biden to come out and basically say that, um, you know, use the Armageddon word, which is a, which is a it's a big word, not just it's in letters. It's very loaded and people, you it's know, very, very, very loaded. I mean, that is that is especially for a, for a Democrat to use language like that. I mean, you know, you can understand Donald Trump kind of, you know, the big guns. But I mean, he's on Putin's side anyway. Right. So right. so for for Joe Biden to use this rhetoric, um, I mean, how. You know, I haven't lived through any kind of nuclear uh, kind of, you know, as an adult, I've not lived sure, through any yeah. kind of nuclear We're political. younger than the Cuban Missile Crisis. I, I, a little bit, yeah, just by, by about 12 years. But, uh, I mean, how does this play out, Dave? Yeah, so, um, you know, I've been coming at this from maybe a little bit different angle than some analysts. And, you know, I have a pretty good network of folks with, you know, a lot of foreign service kind of training and, you know, international relations and all of this kind of stuff. So I, I balance a lot of what I'm seeing against, you know, their viewpoints, and I try to create kind of a synthesized viewpoint. But basically, you know, what I kind of see with this, at least from the perspective of looking at the information warfare that is out in the wild and the kind of messaging that's, um, you know, being put out from people like Alexander Dugan. And I think it's important to stress that, like, I don't think that, like, Alexander Dugan is whispering in Putin's ear, and I don't think that Putin gets all of his ideas from Alexander Dugan, but they are drawing from the same kinds of cultural wellsprings. And, uh, you know, all of it is tied back to um, Eurasianism. You know, you heard Putin in his speech the other day mentioned Ivan Ilyin, the Russian nationalist poet, um, who uh, really set into motion a lot of the ideas that are behind uh, Russia's current um, strategy. Um, and so, uh, you know, you also have philosophies like Russian cosmism, uh, which are extremely, uh, you know, rooted in 
uh, almost, uh, you know, anti-Darwinistic views of science. I mean, there and there's a lot of superstition and ideas of upheaval and whatnot that are at play here. So the thing that I see is that because uh, Putin sees this as a kind of irreducible conflict uh, that cannot be resolved through diplomacy, that cannot be resolved uh, really ever, uh, you know, it, he is forcing you know, the will of his country to take the planet in a different strategic direction. He and he's killing his to, own people in the process, isn't he? Because yeah, by, and as many as is conscription, he's just sending people to the death. He's convinced himself that this is a, a holy cause and that, you know, and I use the word holy in a kind of a syncretic way. You know, it's not necessarily any one religion. It's it's his views. You know, he sees that as a big idea that's worth supporting with the lives of all of his countrymen. And so, uh, you know, this kind of irreducible conflict uh, I think puts us into a position where, you know, he's very likely to, you know, use nuclear weapons of, of one kind or another. Now, all of the speculation amongst kind of military type folks uh, and, you know, policy type folks is that there'll be tactical nuclear weapons on the battlefield to achieve either shock and awe or some kind of battlefield objective that will hopefully turn the tide of the war in his favor. I come out of. He's already used dirty bit. bombs, though, hasn't he? Do you remember when he blew up the hospital and these the I forget what they're called, but they cause some kind of ricochet where it just blows yeah, all it's the windows. Cluster up. munitions, right? Um, you know that are very dangerous. So, you know, um, I do think that there's a possibility that you know he might use nuclear weapons in Ukraine, and one reason why he might do that is because. Ukraine is not officially allied with anybody and, you know, wouldn't trigger an Article 5 response necessarily. Um, but I, I think you have to also look at the fact that the statements that have come from Putin and his peers are that NATO is invalid, NATO is dishonest, NATO doesn't really believe the things it says. So what they've kind of convinced themselves, I think at least partly, is that Article 5 isn't really valid and that they want to test, they want to show the hypocrisy of NATO by proving that we will not actually respond to a, a threat and a trigger of Article 5. Now, you know, you have to get yourself into a pretty special headspace to actually believe that. But I think that, you know, the evidence suggests that that's possible that they are in that kind of a headspace. And um, I also think that given the way that, you know, they conceive of this situation, a lot of what they might try to do is to influence Western populations in democracies to stop supporting Ukraine, because really that's their only pathway to achieving the results that they want here is to lose the support, you know, for Ukraine to lose the support of the West. So a and that's way already happening, isn't it? Well, if there's starting to be some cracks that they're starting to try to amplify and widen, you know, but uh, in order for like if there was some kind of nuclear detonation, that would have a big impact on, let's say, the support of Germany or France, who are, you know, right there and they feel like that their interests are directly threatened. Plus, you already have a large peace oriented faction, you know, uh, in those governments. Uh, I think that there's a, a lot of Russian infiltration, say, like in, in, the, in the German government. So, you know, it's not ridiculous to think that they might be able to sway public opinion in that way. And that's, I think, kind of what's going on right now. 
There's some evidence to suggest that Putin's nuclear arsenal is actually not quite up to standard. Uh, sure. There were some images recently of, of rockets being tested and, and blowing in all directions. Right. I mean, you know, we've seen that with some of their equipment as well, right? Some, some of their tanks and stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's all left over from the Cold War. I mean, is, is he really armed? Does he have the capability or is this all empty threats? Is he doing a kind of Saddam Hussein, you know, kind of poker face? I've got the weapons and I'm going to use them and it'll turn out to be a minimal. Well, I mean, I think, you know, you have to look at the fact that they have a tremendous number of weapons. Um, yeah. And, you know, there's just, I think, thousands of you know nuclear warheads of various kinds. Um, but there's a lot of stuff that they've built and, you know, are deploying that's that's really recent, you know, like so there's this uh, Belgorod submarine that's, you know, massive and is able to deploy these really huge Poseidon missiles. And all that stuff dates from like 2015 to 2018, um, you know, based on the analysis that I've been able to do, you know, which is tracking a lot of different signals and, and making educated guesses. Um, you know, it looks to me like if they're going to do something, it's going to be submarine oriented because I think that's where they actually have capability. And I think that they are looking, you know, they've put out videos and stuff that suggests that they're looking at doing weapons that can create tidal wave type events. Um, and, you know, they, they wanted to submerge, you know, Britain with a big, you know, radioactive tidal wave from a massive, uh, you know, I forget what it was, 100 megaton or something, you know, explosion from this uh, Poseidon submarine. And they're talking about testing that submarine now up in the Kara Sea in the, in the Arctic. So, and there's been chatter around um, a potential, uh, you know, submarine nuclear deployment potentially in the Black Sea. So, I mean, you know, this could all be bluster or there could be something to it. What I feel like is that they would want to do something that tries to expose NATO as hypocritical, that would be maybe of sort of it might cause questions in terms of how we actually respond to it in the West. And mostly it would be an informational weapon designed to shape public opinion. I don't I, I just don't see that this solves anything for them on the battlefield, I think it's much more likely they're going to try to shape public opinion. And there, there is mutiny in the ranks, isn't there? We've, we've heard in the last few days about the fact that not everybody in uh, Russia, certainly in the, in the Russian uh, government or the Russian military, shares Vladimir Putin's uh, intent to take Ukraine in this way. Um, well, yeah, I mean, there's definitely power struggles, too. You know, you've got uh, Prigozhin, uh, you know, who is criticizing, you know, uh, upper leadership, uh, you know, Shoigu, you know, they're all sort of that, uh, sort of vying for primacy and, you know, trying to get, uh, I suppose, you know, there's also the potential for, you know, Putin to be potentially deposed. But, you know, a lot of folks have suggested that, you know, the next person that would be uh, likely to take over from him would be uh, Petrushev, who's currently head of the security service. So, you know, um, I, I think uh, it's difficult to say how that might play out internally. But, yeah, there's definitely dissent. And then the other question is that a lot of people have is, you know, if Putin gives some kind of nuclear fire order, would it be followed? And, um, right. you know, it's happened in the past where things like that have not been followed. So that's another possibility for ways out of this. Let's just talk about, I mean, NATO is something that 
protects countries, keeps countries together. It's, a, it's, a, it's an agreement that effectively um, keeps us all safe. Donald Trump was this close to pulling America out of NATO and spoke yeah. very negatively about it during his tenure. Right. What kind of effect do you think that had? Because I, I'm very interested in the link between Donald Trump's presidency and Vladimir Putin's desire to go into Ukraine once Trump's presidency was up. Because a, a, lo- a lot of um, uh, academics are suggesting that there is a link and the the polar opposite to an academic is Donald Trump. And he has said this would never have happened if I was still president. So let's just deal with that, shall we? Yeah, sure. So I know that that's been the subject of some speculation. Um, You know, my feeling is that, uh, you know, the evidence suggests that, you know, Trump and the people around him have generally been sympathetic to Russia's, you know, desires. And, you know, as you talked about, was considering pulling uh, the U.S. out of NATO, which would have uh, really been a blank check to Russia to go do kind of whatever they wanted to in Europe. Because uh, nobody besides the U.S. Uh, inside of NATO would have really the sort of heft to respond to, um, you know, those kinds of threats. So, um, you know, I, I can't help but see, you know, Trump as effectively preparing the soil for Putin and the things that he wanted to do. Um, and really, you know, his presidency as being uh, in service of Putin's goals. Um, now, you know, uh I think, you know, you could you could have a I, I you know, suppose, for instance, that Putin, um, you know, did his initial invasion of Ukraine in 2014. And the plan was, you know, more or less in eight or 10 years, we're going to do the rest. And, you know, he could have had that plan regardless of who was president. And if, it, you know, if Trump had been president, it probably would have been a lot easier. <laughs> you know, it's given that Biden was president, it, it, it created more trouble for him. But I also think you have to look at Putin's, you know, move here, not so much in terms of territorial desire for Ukraine, although it is definitely that. Um, it's also an assault on the system of state sovereignty that, you know, has been in place since the Treaty of Westphalia was you know, signed in 1648. And, you know, that being the the notion that every state has a right to determine its, you know, sovereign uh, destiny and all of that. So effectively, what Putin is doing is saying, yeah, I don't really think that's how stuff works. I think we're I'm going to do things my way. And so, you know, the notion of which president it happened under and all this, I mean, like, eh, you know, whatever, if you're going to make if if your life's legacy is going to be to upend Westphalian sovereignty, you know, the exact moment you make the move, I'm not sure is material here. And I think that Putin felt like that he had already laid enough informational groundwork in the U.S. and the West uh, by way of Trump's presidency and, and the other kinds of networks that he built in Europe um, to make this a viable move now. And I just don't know that it would have made any difference as to who was president, you know, whether he would pursue this or not. Let's talk about the technology that they use. Uh, and, and we know that Russia were heavily involved in manipulating the 2016 election, uh, certainly the, the Brexit referendum in, in the UK. Um, what, what, are they, what are their technologists doing now to kind of make people around the world try and see it from their perspective? Because obviously Russia is a bit of a closed shop in terms of the internet and broadcasting. And so a lot of Russians think that the, the war in Ukraine is a, is a holy war and, and they're on the right side with Putin. 
But in, in territories where they don't control the media uh, or the internet, how, how are they convincing some Republicans even that uh, certainly here in the US that, that Putin is, is the man to support? Yeah, so I think one has to look at the term technology as being a very broad term. I mean, this isn't just about, you know, sort of Facebook ads or, you know, and that was the the focus of a lot of early discussion of this. And it also isn't just about elections. It's really about political technology, which is, you know, the practice of shaping the political landscape to suit the ends that you're trying to achieve. Um, It's also about information warfare and narrative warfare and trying to build up networks of people who support your points of view. So, for example, you know, as I said, you know, this pro-Putin network, you know, goes back uh, really, you know, to laying the groundwork in the 90s and then, you know, really gained a lot of ground starting in around 2014. So, you know, cre- creating networks of people who support alternative narratives of how, th- how the world works and should be, um, you know, that those kinds of networks just grow and grow and grow. And if you, you know, particularly through social media, you can find ways to amplify and gain followers for those types of networks. And, you know, we see, you know, a variety of pro-Russia networks, um, you know, certainly in the U.S. Now, the question always is, you know, how big can those can those sort of alternative networks become and can they actually alter outcomes in a democratic environment? And, you know, oftentimes, yeah, they can, because if you're talking about peeling off, uh, you know, 10, 12 percent of people into some alternative set of points of view, you know, that's material in a first-past-the-post democratic contest, which is what we live with here in the United States, a little bit different in parliamentary systems, and there's, you know, variations around the world. But bottom line is that, you know, that kind of information narrative warfare um, is very effective, and you don't need a ton of people to be converted to the points of view in order to have a very massive effect. And, you know, and we talk about support for Ukraine, you know, if the votes are currently, you know, you know, uh, relatively balanced, you know, between pro-Ukraine, anti-Ukraine, then, you know, you only have to work the margin of a few percentage points to shift the outcome. Now, you know, and in fact, I think in America, you know, people are overwhelmingly supporting uh, Ukraine uh, in terms of, uh, you know, an an electoral context. I mean, it's something like 74 percent or something like that. Um, and you saw when Elon Musk the other day tried to propose, you know, that uh, we we discontinue doing this, you know, supporting Ukraine. Uh, he was pretty roundly smacked down by American audiences, certainly. Uh, but yeah, I, want, I wanted to mention Musk. I mean, you know, he's he's certainly somebody who shouldn't be meddling in politics. And if he does take ownership of Twitter, then he will, really will have a huge wield a huge amount of power. But yeah. his his tweet, I think it was on Wednesday said, assuming you believe that the will of the people matters, we should in any given conflict region support the will of those who live there. And then he proceeded to kind of post a, a map of um, uh, of Ukraine from 2012, showing <laughs> yeah, kind of pro, pro-Russia <laughs> sections. I mean, this is very dangerous, isn't it? Because, you know, since his offer to buy uh, Twitter, which now looks like it's going through, and the and the um, uh, the the kind of fight, the the uh, criminal yeah, case against him. Yeah, probably it'll go through. We'll see. Yeah, yeah. The, the the case against him has now been put on hold, so he can you know raise the yeah, money. Yeah, I think he has yeah. until the twenty eighth of October to uh, close yeah. the deal, and then the case will resume. to find like forty billion dollars. Yeah, I mean, I mean, somewhere go check somewhere. his couch. You know? Yeah, exactly that. So, I'm just really interested in how. People like Elon Musk, who present themselves as kind of apolitical, 
initially a few years ago, we found out that like secretly he'd been donating to the Republican Party. And so that was like the first sniff of, oh, hang on, is Elon Musk? Because he's just seemed because he was into electric cars like a Democrat. I mean, is it crazy yeah. that we would and, you know, suggest there that? was a conception that people that were operating in Silicon Valley were mostly progressives, you know? Right. And so now we find that actually he's somebody who's quite prepared to lay his cards on the table, is doing this whole kind of free speech uh, opinion, which, which, you know, it's just not, it's untrue. I mean, it's just, it's really not based in fact. Right. Uh, a lot of it, I guess, is a negotiating ploy for reducing the, the purchase price of Twitter. But at the same time, there are a lot of fans and followers of Elon because they think of him as being a kind of Tony Stark style character and somebody who, you know, we should be supporting. And and there are people who are now thinking, well, if Elon says it's the right thing, then maybe it is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's an interesting character and somebody that I've been keeping an eye on since about 2020 from like an information warfare perspective, because he started to kind of you know, do some kind of strange things in terms of um, trying to kind of warp the information landscape. And uh, it became clear to me that he was kind of engaged in this whole, you know, network of shifting interests, let's just say. But, um, you know, I, I, I think we know now more about kind of his ideologies and the, the kinds of people that he's networked with. We saw from the, uh, you know, text message exchanges that he was uh, sharing, you know, with respect to the Twitter deal that, you know, he's in touch with a whole variety of really, you know, pretty hardcore libertarian thinkers, um, you know, people like David Sachs, um, uh, Joe Lonsdale, other people from like PayPal, um, you know, Jason Calacanis. I mean, th these are people that are pretty libertarian in their orientation. And, um, you know, he's also very much part of this whole long-termism movement, which is actually a kind of repackaging of Russian cosmism, it turns out, um, which is another interesting rabbit hole to go down. But um, basically, you know, what, what I believe, you know, Musk and, and some of his peers really are looking to help drive is a kind of post-democracy world. Like, this isn't about gaining control of the the American democracy and being the ruling party. This is about shifting to a totally different kind of governance model. And the, as best I can tell, the sort of model that they're plugged into is something called noocracy, which is the idea of a kind of rule by the wise that would also be informed by direct democracy. Um, the idea of like giving everybody an app that they can use to vote on daily issues and that this would be done on different scales than perhaps we're accustomed to, to using right now. You know, so it might not be that there's, you know, maybe the United States doesn't exist anymore. And instead of the United States and Maryland and California and New York or whatever, uh, people are voting based on other uh, categorizations and criteria. And so they're very much, you know, and you have to kind of go like, oh, well, that's a big vision, you know. <laughs> We're going to overthrow all the world's governments and replace them with an app. But um, I think that's kind of what, what's in their heads. And, um, you know, there's many steps between here and there, uh, obviously. But uh, I think that's kind of, kind of the model. And the more that, you know, you read about kind of the ideas that are underneath a lot of this, um, you know, there's a, a RAND um, a corporation report around uh, noospherics and noopolitic and all of this. These are real ideas. I mean, they're out there. People are. And they're not are all bad ideas because, I mean, arguably, 
I mean, use Kentucky as an example where Mitch McConnell has like one polling place and people have to travel for hours to get to it to vote, which keeps him in power. You know, voting with paper in person is is very antiquated. And I've always said for years, I used to say this on the radio like 10 years ago, you know, if they can use an app for people at home to vote on Dancing with the Stars, then why can't we use that for democracy? I mean, if it's secure and if it's safe then surely you will get a greater consensus that way. But it depends yeah. who, who the puppet master is, doesn't it? Well, there's also asterisks to that. Um, you know, it, it, I'm friends with one of the leading election security experts uh, who's a Johns Hopkins professor. And, uh, you know, he has basic, you know, he and other peers have evaluated uh, technical solutions for voting. And the problem is that there really isn't anything as secure and as good as paper ballots. Um, however, you know, it certainly would be more convenient and maybe you could increase participation. There's a lot of other trade-offs to, to consider besides security. But if you want security, paper's the way to go. Now, um, you know, the reason for that is partly because, uh, you know, these systems, if they uh, are digital, they become, uh, you know, huge targets for manipulation, and it's very difficult to know if they've been manipulated, um, ultimately. Um, so, you know, there's a whole lo big long list of technical reasons yeah. why that's the but case. But if there's bamboo but, in the paper, Dave, then there's a good <laughs> chance that China were behind it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Remember that one. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it's it's very interesting to me that we are we are living in a world that is, you know, people refer to the world is getting smaller and and obviously information and technology is is behind a lot of that, as well as, you know, it used to be the case that like hub and spoke airports made the world smaller. You know, you could get places. Right. But now technology is making the world smaller because we can I mean, I do crazy things and forgive me just for a moment, but. If I want to go and spend the afternoon in another country, there are people now who walk around cities with a gimbal and a, and a camera, and they just walk. And I put it on my big TV, and it's in 4K, and I feel like I'm walking around Cairo right, or, right. Or, or London if I miss it. I mean, and they only, they only filmed this like two days ago, and it's already up. Right. I mean, that's a very recreational thing, um, and is at one end of the, of the spectrum. But it's making the world smaller. And also, I mean, you know, there are some certainly I think American right now is saying, you know, Cairo is not a great safe place to visit. So, well, I'll just watch it in 4K Even at better, home. Yeah. Right. Mm. But but what the technology does is it, it enables people to take an interest in other democracies and other um, processes and wars. I mean, I remember the, you know, I remember the Gulf War, the first time we had video, live video pictures of those Scud missiles. Do you remember that? And sure. it was compelling. I mean, it was compelling to watch that type of stuff on television. But the tragedy of all of this is that the kind of organic nature of, of, of reality disappears and is replaced with a technical version. I mean, I'm not getting Cairo. I'm getting some guy's walking yeah, version of it. The simulacrum you know? of Cairo. Right. Uh, so somebody's phone. And it's the same with warfare and everything else. You know, like, it's very hard for us to have true empathy when we're just relying on Elon Musk's opinion or, uh, or some, you know, video playback, right? Yeah, well, you know, the thing that I've kind of identified as being key to all of this is 
uh, really the influence of um, and, and the undocumented kind of uh, process of the creation and destruction of social capital. And by that, I mean the ties between us socially. Um, you know, we, uh, you know, have exist in this very complicated, uh, you know, sort of uh, highly textured world that you can do all kinds of amazing things. I mean, the notion that we're able to do this kind of a video call and, you know, this is just normal now, uh, you know, it's it's amazing. And, and the fact that we can watch wars and whatnot remotely via uh, social media channels and all of that, I mean, it's 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 truly an age of wonders. But the thing that we, you know, I think haven't really properly accounted for is the effects that it's having on us in terms of how we identify uh, and how we connect with others. Um, so, for example, you know, if you talk about disinformation, well, what's the mechanism of action of disinformation exactly? You know, you you might ingest some piece of, of you know, information. You go, well, that seems kind of true to me. Hmm. You know, and then you start going around and telling other people that. And it turns out, well, some of your friends don't really want to hear you talk about that. So they stop seeing you. You start hanging around with the friends that are more inclined with this stuff. You start watching videos and forming parasocial relationships with people online and you know, uh, groups and whatnot of people that believe similar ideas to you. And you've actually radically changed your social connections as a result of being drawn into these information networks. And that in turn has a big impact on your identity. You know, who you are and what you believe is so much in dialogue with your social relationships. So for me, that's kind of the the unmeasured underlying force that we need to become much more competent with uh, understanding and comprehending because it isn't about disinformation. It's about how it changes us socially. It's about how it changes our identities. Because the more that we become drawn into radical beliefs, you know, circles and social networks, the more radical we in fact are. And, uh, you know, that's going to lead to political violence. It's going to lead to intolerance. It's going to lead to um, you know, upheavals and uh, anti-democratic and illiberal movements taking hold. And that's exactly what we see. The internet has forced this to be sped up. Without, If, if you remove the, the internet from this entire equation, Dave, the, I mean, Al-Qaeda never had a headquarters. It existed right. online, effectively, right? It was, it was, it was a you know, fractions, and they were brought together because they had the technology to do so. I mean, if, and I hope Tim Berners-Lee is not watching this because, you know, he'll take full, I don't want him to take any more responsibility, but the yeah, invention of the... I guilty already. I, I think he probably does. That's why, that's why he doesn't go out much. The, the invention of the internet has encouraged political violence. It's encouraged extremism. It has enabled these organizations like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, to communicate not just in their small groups. And, you know, think about how they did it before the Internet. They would have to have, like, they'd be pen pals, effectively, right, or they'd right. have a meetup. Very slow. Right, very slow. So, in your opinion, as a technologist, I mean, how much responsibility does the Internet take for this huge shift to the, to the right or to, the, the, you know, what used to be the fringe becoming the mainstream? Well, I think the internet, um, you know, is an accelerant. It's a catalyst, like you say. It makes everything go faster. It also reaches everyone, almost everyone. Um, so, you know, the idea of whatever was going to happen, happening a lot faster and reaching everybody, 
Um, you know, that's, I think, the, probably the biggest factor to consider. Now, you know, that said, um, it has also made it very easy for all sorts of actors to reach people with whatever kinds of messaging they want to provide. And that, in turn, you know, has given an opportunity for people to be corralled up and, and radicalized in different ways for a whole variety of reasons, um, you know, worldwide. The other thing I think that, you know, bears some responsibility is that there was a real sense, and I remember being part of this, you know, back in the 90s, there was a real sense that, you know, if we could just get everybody connected, that magic would somehow or another occur and, you know, good things would happen. So, you know, you had John Perry Barlow with his declaration of cyberspace independence and all this, the idea that, you know, it should be left alone and almost a very libertarian kind of mindset that, you know, somehow or another information and the market for information and the free marketplace of ideas would result in some sort of magical outcome. And I think that what we've seen now is that that's just not true. <laughs> you know, it has led to a lot of weird, uh, you know, kind of fractal uh, side effects that uh, nobody could really anticipate. But just seeing and, something in you know, print, doesn't that authenticate it? I mean, this has always been my opinion. You know, decades ago before the right. internet, if you wanted to have a voice, in England, we would have to write a letter to the Times newspaper, which started, Dear Sir, yeah, if you had right. an opinion, right? And there was a one in a million chance that it would be printed. And if it was, you were like a local celebrity because, you right. know, as an ordinary person, your opinion suddenly became part of the national conversation. Now everybody has a platform and everybody has a voice. And so, mm -hmm. yes, it's more democratic, but it's also much more dangerous because if you see something in print, i.e. on the screen, and it's got a, you know, let's say it's, I don't know, it's on some kind of uh, website, Rumble or something, you know, just the layout gives somebody's uh, crackpot opinion or authority because it's suddenly in print, even though they typed it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, this lack of gatekeepers, um, you know, has put a lot of responsibility onto, you know, independent media producers like, you know, you or me, who are trying really hard to be credible and, you know, make sure that we, you know, sort of conform to all of the conventions of, uh, you know, this medium so that, you know, we are can be trusted voices. And there's so many voices that really, uh, you know, don't even bother to, in fact, are, you know, trying not to conform with any of those norms. So, you know, I mean, I think it's that's a definite challenge. And, um, you know, I, I think, um, you know, that's certainly a, another piece of the landscape. The other thing that, you know, I think we see exhibited again and again is the sort of drifting into cult behavior. Um, and so one of the main things that I've had to do um, as a result of working in this space is become extremely familiar with the history of cults and how they work. So I work very closely with a guy named Steve Hassan, who's one of the leading experts on cults. He's been on the show a couple of times, Steve. Okay, fact, yeah. I, so, I, you know, I recently I, watched your interview with him, and it's and I do recommend it. It's it's fascinating. But yeah. isn't it crazy that like he has come into his own now as a as a you know yeah. given a lifelong study of cults because cults was a word that we didn't really make that much use of, and suddenly right. it seems to be everywhere. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's truly the um, kind of defining paradigm of this moment, because this is this thing with social capital and radicalization. 
is that, um, you know, we are basically pushing people, you know, people are being drawn into cultish social formations. And, you know, I have some analogies that I like to use with this. It's similar to, you know, like uh, the theory of gravity, you know, the, the idea of people sort of being drawn closer into each other with tighter and tighter social, social bonds to the point where it's very, very difficult for them to get out. Now, you know, we are different from atoms in that atoms don't have agency and free will, but, you know, humans do. And so we can figure out ways to unwind ourselves from these high gravity situations. But, you know, cults are a little bit like uh, social black holes in that regard. And what we've got right now, you know, with the internet operating the way that it is, is kind of a machine for making black holes. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a very dangerous kind of uh, phenomenon to be uh, witnessing. Let's talk about January 6th just for a moment. This is after uh, this chap, Jeremy Joseph Bertino, has agreed to cooperate with the Justice Department's investigation of the role that the Proud Boys leaders played in the mob's attack on uh, the Capitol building. They say that his cooperation could actually ratchet up the pressure on other Proud Boys charged in the siege, including the former national chairman, Enrique Tarrio. Um, right. And... It, it, what's very interesting to me, I'll just like summarize uh, before your expertise, but like we didn't realize quite how coordinated January 6th was on the ground until recently, that it turns out that it was these militia groups, which you could also call cults, who were operating via Michael Flynn, and, and we're probably going to find out, aren't we, as, as this investigation yeah. ro rolls out. But they were basically waiting, not in their militia costumes, their military garb, but dressed just in, like, regular black clothing to open the floodgates, to remove the barriers, to fight the police, to then allow regular citizens to kind of go in and do the rest of it. I mean... It's kind of clever, isn't it? But it's also pretty terrifying because there's been a lot of rumors for years about the black bloc and various groups who show up at protests. Right. Uh, Donald Trump has used this initially with January 6th. You know, the, the, the right wing was saying, oh, well, it was Antifa that showed up. You know, I mean, let's just talk a little bit about how these uh, cults and these militia groups are infiltrating government, but also how government, in the case of the Trump administration, is making use of these. Roger Stone had had Oath Keepers as his bodyguards. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, you've got all of these different, um, you know, subgroups that have been deployed in different ways. The thing, and I, this really wasn't, you know, totally clear until after January 6th, unfortunately, um, you know, I, I think a lot of analysts, myself included, felt like that January 6th, you know, was a potentially dangerous situation because you, you did have a lot of these kind of right wing type folks planning to be there. But up until then, there hadn't really been much of a target except for to fight with left wing counter protesters and that sort of thing. And given that situation, so many left wing counter protesters were told do not go to Washington on January 6th. So the hypothesis was that there wouldn't be much of a conflict because the, the opposition wasn't there. And so these guys could go parade around and rally and whatever, but it wouldn't amount to much because we everybody assumed that the Capitol and other targets that could potentially come into play would be defended. 
And, you know, what I think nobody really counted on was that there was going to be a kinetic warfare plan to uh, actually infiltrate the building, uh, to, uh, you know, potentially compromise folks on the inside, either, you know, we still don't know what the deal was with, like, Charles Flynn and why the National Guard wasn't sent for so long. That's the brother of Michael Flynn, who so far has not lifted his head above the parapet. Yeah, so we just don't know, you know, even now, uh, why there wasn't more of a defense of the Capitol. Because, you know, there's really no reason why that that the facility could not have been properly defended. Um, it just seems like, you know, there was both, uh, you know, lack of resources initially, and then when there were more resources needed, they were delayed. So, you know, but the very clever strategy that they did, in fact, looks like use was, you know, to basically you know, use a mix of these different groups. You know, you've got uh, the Oath Keepers, the First Amendment Praetorians, the Proud Boys, um, you know, a variety of others that were actually kind of active units in terms of, you know, planning and executing a a siege of the facility. Um, And then they were given cover by all of these randos, (laughs) you know, the QAnon shaman and all these other crazy people who were, you know, frankly, victims of, of, you know, information warfare. And they turned up, uh, you know, thinking that they were being part of some sort of populist thing. But in fact, it was a a pretty carefully planned, you know, military style coup that was, you know, failed, but it was certainly attempted. And um, so I think, you know, we'll find, you know, with this fellow uh, Bertino, you know, he's, Fled uh, to uh, seditious conspiracy, so you know that's that implies others. That implies that he's going to name names and provide information that will help to root out the rest of that particular conspiracy. Um, and I think you know we'll see similar things happening with the Oath Keepers folks too. I I was hypothesizing that a lot of this is going to end up at at um, the the door of the, uh, the the president's chief of staff. Mm. Mark Meadows, his his cell phone, which I think is going to turn out to be the most crucial piece of evidence in this entire thing. That and also the, uh, you know, Secret Service messages that apparently have been now recovered and are in the possession of the January 6th committee. So I haven't been, you know, focusing on the play-by-play of all the things that are being found out there, you know, more than, uh, say, a lot of people have. But um, you know, because there's a lot of people that are active, actively tracking all of that, and I'm kind of focused on the on some of the more Russia-oriented stuff right now. But um, yeah, you know, it's um, it definitely. I think we're going to get uh, some pretty good idea of what went down there, and it looks like you know a lot of the people that were involved are starting to cooperate, um, which is good to see. It's interesting that you separate Russia from January 6th because there is an argument to say that they're intrinsically well, it's kind linked. kind of the same thing, yeah. And, and, and that Michael Flynn is the linchpin because, as we know, he had these meetings with Russia. He's, he is somebody who has communicated with Russia. He lied twice to the FBI about, about communications. Uh, he then got a presidential pardon in the last few days of the, of the, of the Trump presidency. Right. He's now going around the country with his own, he's, you know, created, it's called the Reawaken America Tour, launched right. by Michael Flynn. He, let's just be clear, he's the former White House National Security Advisor. Well, for a couple of weeks. For, for, a, for a couple of weeks, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But he very much remained in, in that role in a, in a kind of unofficial uh, way, I'm sure, because his communications would suggest that. Um, with this, he has 
now teamed up with an Oklahoma entrepreneur called Clay Clark. Uh, this all started a few months after the insurrection. And um, attendees and speakers at these events that he's been hosting, um, they still insist against all the evidence that Donald Trump rightfully won the election. And, and these events are becoming increasingly uh, religious. Uh, they, they are a little bit like those... Um, kind of evangelical Christian arena yeah, shows. Revivals, you know. Right. So just explain where, you know, the, the the anomaly that is Michael Flynn. I mean, he really is, but considering he's like a four-star general or something, right? He's been in the military yeah. for, for decades. How many other Michael Flynns are in the military? I mean, it's, I mean, certainly his brother, but I mean, this is insane. No one seems to really talk about the fact that this was a guy who was very much at the top of the of the US military who has turned out to be a complete lunatic. Yeah, I mean he's he's a traitor um by any conventional measure and um you know one of the things that I documented shortly after January 6th was just how many military and intelligence people uh, both active and retired uh had been promoting messaging, you know, related to QAnon and promoting January 6th and all of this kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, it's I just in a fairly casual uh, survey, you know, was able to identify something like 40 or 50 people. Um, and, you know, that's the visible people that are out making media and, you know, talking in public and networking with these, uh, you know, kinds of folks. How many other people are, you know, sort of heads down a little bit more quietly on the inside? There's you know, various other kinds of movements. Uh, there's something called the Order of the Nine Angles that is kind of like a weird, you know, sort of Satanist type movement that's, you know, trying to infiltrate the military. And they're doing so with the express purpose of getting training from the U.S. military and then using it against the country. <laughs> you know, it's like, OK, you know, and so there's a lot of this kind of stuff going on and uh, it's quite disturbing. Um, I think, you know, it's easy to perhaps, uh, you know, I guess get into a frenzy over it. I, I don't want to overestimate the problem, but I also don't want to underestimate it because there is a serious issue here. And we keep finding evidence of folks who, uh, you know, are uh, really, you know, not uh, acting with in good faith or with the country's interest or with, you know, our global interests at heart. But the and, extreme um, effect of this know. is Biden says, OK, press the nuclear button. And the person sitting there goes, no, I'm a fan of Russia. I yeah. mean, that, that, that's that's where this could end up. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly, the, you know, the worst case scenario. Um, but, uh, you know, we have to consider, I mean, even in the case of Charles Flynn, um, and, you know, look, I don't know, you know, what's going on with him. I don't have access to his personnel records. I don't know what's what he's been interviewed about. And, you know, I'm sure that this question has come up in some kind of way. And Michael but, Flynn you know, won't answer any questions about his brother. I've seen yeah. a few times people have put a microphone yeah. and said, what about Charles? And he, he literally cancels the interview. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, Charles is in charge of the U.S. Army Pacific Command. He's based in Hawaii. Uh, he would have purview over the Army's activities with respect to anything having to do with China and Taiwan. And we really don't know, you know, the public doesn't have a good sense of where his loyalties are. Um, you know, he appeared to have been in the room uh, when the decision to not send the National Guard was made on January 6th. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, the input into that decision, we just don't know. The Army actually lied about that. 
uh, when asked about it initially, they said, no, he wasn't in the room. But then later they, they corrected themselves and said, well, no, actually he was. And so, uh, you know, it's a black box. And, and I would love for President Biden to, uh, you know, request that the Pentagon clarify his status. And, you know, like, what would be the harm, just for example, of putting the guy on temporary leave for six months and reviewing the situation? And then if there's absolutely no issue and we're totally sure he's okay, put him back or maybe put him in a different role. I don't know what the right answer is. But Maybe uh, send him off with Louis DeJoy of the post office and let them take a vacation together. In, uh, yeah, they should go know. off somewhere together and let's put some other people in place. You know, so it's that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just want to talk a bit more about Michael Flynn and this Reawaken America tour. It's now carried its message of a country under siege to tens of thousands of people in 15 cities and towns. Um, it's like a traveling roadshow and a recruiting tool for an ascendant Christian nationalist movement that's wrapped itself in God and patriotism and politics. Sure. It's grown in power. It's growing in influence inside the Republican Party. And it's all about Christianity, which they say should be at the center of American life and institutions. And we've already seen, you know, with the, with the packing of the, of the Supreme Court and their decision on, on Roe and whatever else is to come there, but also suggesting that America is some way under attack and, and right. having to restore the nation's Christian roots. Yeah. I mean, that is in direct contrast to what the Constitution says, which, which says that, that nobody should be forced to practice a religion that isn't of their choosing. I mean, Yeah, I mean, the Founding Fathers were expressly concerned with not and having state religion. Right. So how do these two coexist and where do you see this ending up? So this is a very complicated question, but the bottom line is that I believe that Flynn is using this, uh, you know, as a very cynical kind of just information warfare tactic. Um, there was a document that uh, one of our colleagues uh, who goes on Twitter by Gal Suburban, she found a document from 2012 that Flynn had pulled together that basically outlines all of these like psychological warfare strategies of and using religion as an instrument to get people to uh, start to, you know, er erode their own state, you know, that kind of thing, and to spark revolutions and whatnot. So my opinion is that um, we're a little bit overmatching on the idea that this is, you know, about Christianity. It is somebody like Flynn is using Christianity as a tool to achieve the ends that he wants to achieve. If if America was predominantly Sufi, he would be having a Sufi tent revival. You know, it doesn't matter. You know, this is a way to reach the audience that he wants to reach. And the the idea of America being under attack and, you know, uh, potentially being at risk and all of this kind of stems from this, um, you know, I would call it 100-year uh, idea that, um, you know, 100-year-old idea that, uh, you know, c capitalism and communism are in, locked in some kind of, you know, uh, bloody eternal conflict. And the infiltration of, um, you know, communists into the you know, United States presents an existential risk for the country. So, you know, the idea that um, we need to, you know, rise up and protect the country from the creeping communists, um, who also, you know, for, from, for their, from their perspective might also happen to be anti-Christian and godless and homosexual and whatever else, uh, you know, it's just kind of a convenient, uh, coincidence. Um, but, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a very cynical deployment of religion 
to achieve a specific end. And I would also note that, you know, the fact that they're incorporating elements like uh, baptism and whatnot, I wouldn't look at that so much as a dogmatic or doctrinal, you know, uh, fact. I would look at it more as it being an, an, an initiatic ceremony, um, which kind of creates a stronger bond between people in a movement. Uh, any kind of initiatic uh, group is going to have a much tighter, kind of more active social dynamic than one that doesn't have an initiation. So it's also for fundraising as well, isn't using, it? You know, it's also Michael Flynn making a living. I, I sometimes think that people sure. forget that people need to put food on the table, and 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 you know, if you find some a way where there is suddenly a, an income stream, then you tend to beeline towards it. If it means bringing the whole of the United States down with you, as in the case with Donald Trump, you know, then so be it. At least you'll be able to eat. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a tendency that some people, you know, have to always just go, well, it's just a grift. Um, you know, don't worry about it. They're just trying to make money. And I think, you know, as you say, you, you're also looking at something that has the potential to take down the United States. So yeah. in most of these cases, I would say that they're a combination of grift and geopolitical warfare. And in the case of Flynn, I think he's working for Putin. Interesting. I think there's probably a lot more people working for Putin and we'll, we'll probably find out in, in time. Yeah. It might be too late, though, obviously, but not just because of the midterms, but the threat to democracy. I mean, I was reading about where America sits on the, on the kind of safe, protected democracy list. Right. And it's like 25th or 26th in the world, right? right. Um, the UK, where I'm from, I think sits at like number 12 or something. It, it, it's very interesting to me that maybe it's American exceptionalism, but people still talk about, you know, the greatest democracy in the world. When, the, you know, you only have to travel to, to Scandinavia to find places where they have a, 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 an actual functioning democracy. Yeah, it's broken now. Why do Americans still talk about it like it's in perfect condition when I mean, I refer to the insurrection as is it did overturn the election because it delayed the certification. They were successful for a few hours. In a sense, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that there is a, a sense of American exceptionalism. I also think that you know, there's a, a sense of aspirationalism that exists in America that's always existed where regardless of what we are, we are what we think we want to be, right? right? Like that's who we really are is what we imagine ourselves could be in the future. Um, so I think, you know, you kind of have to, you know, give a little bit of um, uh, leeway, you know, to the, to the idea of what our ideals actually are versus our ability to practice them. Um, and I think, you know, on the whole, most Americans hold those kinds of very idealistic, you know, city on the hill kind of concepts as being very dear and core. And that's part of the reason why people like me, you know, and just average people who are concerned about the direction that things are going in have taken, uh, you know, so much of our time and our lives to really fight for those values and those ideals. Because, you know, f from our perspective, like we, we can't ever, you know, achieve those kinds of actual things in practice if we abandon those ideals. So defending the ideals is actually super important. So, you know, I think the answer to your question is kind of, yes, there's all of those things happening at once. And, uh, you know, our, I think the hope that people like, you know, I and others have is that we'll be able to uh, steer this very large ship, you know, in a, in a better direction and hopefully um, get closer to living up to those ideals. Just finally, the, the irony of this is that 
they say that the 2020 election was one of the most secure in history. Um, because there was the fear that of, you know, all of the fear that Trump and everybody else had like put into it. So it, it was secure. Uh, Trump's desire to take these results to the courts uh, resulted in the court saying, sorry, there's not ev- enough evidence here. There's been no evidence su- to suggest yeah, that, the, that the... And yet America's standing in, in the world in terms of democracy has dropped down the leaderboard. Isn't it interesting that even though it was the most secure election ever, it has dented America's democratic standing? Well, I mean, you know, consider that uh, up until January uh, 6th, 2021, uh, you know, we were very much in a position to take pride in the fact that we had always had a peaceful transition of power. It was no longer the case in 2021. And that was a real... Uh, blow to our system of government and to our own self-image and to the reality of the American, you know, government. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, uh, you know, uh, while our election systems are in fact pretty good, there's also, you know, the the, the public perception and the idea of, of what it means to be governed. And, you know, in order for, I think, a democracy to be deemed fully successful, you know, most of the people... Uh, you know, or at least you'd want pretty much everybody, you know, like 90 some percent of people to agree that, you know, the system is working properly and that, you know, the outcomes are fair and that they were truthful and all of that. But isn't that Trump's legacy? Trump's legacy is, well, if I don't win, then it was rigged. That's what he said. And that's what what J.R. Bolsonaro is saying now, copying the very same rhetoric. So so could, could we, is it fair to say that, of all of the horrific stuff that went by during the Trump administration, not least the Sharpie extending the d- direction of the hurricane, that, that, that claiming that there was election fraud and there, when there wasn't is actually the, the, the greatest damage that that individual, individual one, has done to the United States. Yeah, I think that's among the, the most uh, you know, damaging things. I mean, certainly... Uh, the assault on reality, the assault on truth, the idea that like truth is a subjective thing, I think, you know, is, is very much the realm that we're in right now. Um, I do think that, you know, reality has been kind of asserting itself and we've been chipping away at aspects of that. But, um, you know, it's going to be a long battle to, to come back from this. If we do, I mean, we may just settle into some kind of new reality where like there is, you know, people just say what they want and who cares. But um, hopefully we'll be able to come back from that somewhat. Okay. We have to finish, but I, I've, really, I've really enjoyed the chat. Thank you so yeah, much, absolutely. David. Um, just tell us where people can find you if they want to look you up and read more about you. Yeah, sure. So um, I am at davetroy.com is kind of my main page for just links to all of my different work. So uh, I'm also at Dave Troy on Twitter. Um, and I'm uh, starting a new column for Washington Spectator that'll be out monthly. Um, and also I'll be publishing long form work there. I also have a podcast uh, called Dave Troy Presents, which is available on all of the major podcast platforms. Great. Thank you, Dave. Appreciate it. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe to The Weekend Show on YouTube or as an audio podcast and also the 5-Minute News daily podcast, which drops every morning. So you can hear me telling you what's happening around the world whilst you make your morning coffee. I'm Anthony Davis. Join me next week with a brand new special guest and three more factual news stories to discuss on The 5-Minute News Weekend Show with Midas Touch. Midas Touch.
A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.